You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Our scripture reading is Esther chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. If you want to read along with me, you can. If you just want to listen, that's cool too. Esther chapter 8, 1 through 8. And on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. Amen. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And then Esther spoke again to the king, and she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, And if this thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with the regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. There's so much truth in that that we're going to be able to hear from the preaching and the listening of God's word today. May our hearts be softened. Let's pray. Father God, we just sang our hearts out. We worship you and we praise you. We honor you for you are God. We are nothing. Psalm 8 says, who is man that you are mindful of him, that you care for him. And God, you have made us in your image and likeness, and you call us your workmanship, your poem, that you have created to do good works. God, may we not abandon you. May we not Forget about your ways and what you have for us. May we not leave our Bible sitting on our shelf all week, but may we dig into it because it is active and it is living and it can change our life. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will soften hearts this morning, that if someone does not know you as Savior, that they would not neglect such a great salvation that is available to them through the preaching of your word. God, as we learn about how you are a great intercessor, you are the great high priest that stands in between the Father, and God, you advocate for us. The only way that we have salvation, the only way that we have 
this gift is through your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us. And so may, may that change the way we think, the way we live, the way we love, and the way we worship. And it's in your name I pray. Amen and amen. Amen. Thank you, Stephen. Um, hey, my name's Will. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to preach Esther 8 to you today. Um, before I do that, I'm going to dismiss uh, second through fourth graders. You guys are going to go over to the gymnasium. And um, so you can go ahead and be dismissed at this time. They're going to go across the parking lot to the gym, and they'll be brought back in right before um, the end of the service. Um, also, if you're a first-time guest, uh, please stop at that tent right as you leave um, and let them know you're a first-time guest. If you didn't get a Connect card and it's your first time here, please fill one of those out. Um, they, they will get you a free T-shirt, but if we don't know that it's your first time, sometimes we might miss you, so please let them know uh, so they can hook you up with a, a t-shirt. It's the, it's the softest shirt you're going to have until heaven, and we'd love to bless you with that. Um, I love pastoring a group of rednecks, too. There's a bunch of vegetables out at the tent also, and so um, that's just like southern hospitality we get to offer. So um, if you want some fresh veggies, uh, please take those on your way out. If not, um, then I'm going to end up with all of them, and I don't need all of them. Um, and so make sure you get those on the way out. Um, Heather Cook and her co-workers made sure that happened. So grab some vegetables. Let me recap Esther to you. If you're not familiar with the book or um, you haven't uh, been following along with us, um, it's a story in the Bible uh, that, that is the only book of the Bible that does not mention God explicitly. There's no prayer. There's no reading of the Word of God. There's no prophets. There's, there's no um, clear, um, explicit mentioning of God. And so unlike all the other books of the Bible, we get to see the providence and the sovereignty of God on full display because even when he's not mentioned, you see his work in the, the book of Esther. In chapter 1, the queen of Persia is removed, named Vashti. Um, she's removed by a wicked king, and then Esther is chosen um, later to be uh, the new queen. Her adoptive father, Mordecai, refuses to bow to the second-in-command in Persia, a guy named Haman, who then devises a wicked plot not just to kill Mordecai, but to eliminate all the Jewish people, to commit genocide. He gets the king's permission on this uh, through his deceptive ways, and an edict goes forth to annihilate and kill all Jews in the Persian Empire and all of its expansiveness the day before they celebrate the Passover. And as this goes out, Mordecai goes to his daughter and he says, hey, you've been appointed to this position by, um, by God for such a time as this, that this is providential, that maybe you're here just so you can save uh, your people. And so she musters up courage. She approaches the king. She has a couple of banquets and feasts as she addresses the issue. She ultimately outs Haman. Uh, we saw that last week, and he is executed um, and um, impaled on a gallows um, so that all can see. And now we see in the turn of events in chapter 8, the climax is over, and now we kind of see the following action of the book as, as all of his household, all of his possessions, all of his wealth are given into um, Esther's hands and thereby Mordecai's hands. And the signet ring showing the power of the kingdom is placed on Mordecai's finger rather than Haman's. And so I want you to kind of draw from this. And I think, you know, from flannel graphs and Sunday school growing up, I think in my mind, like Esther ends at chapter seven. That's kind of the end of the story. Yeah, Haman dies, the villain's dead. They live happily ever after. Uh, we celebrate Esther's bravery. But, but chapters eight, nine, and 10 kind of show the resolution of the whole thing. Because even though the villain is dead, his plan is very much alive. And, um, and so we still have to see God's providence work out 
to save the Jewish people. In today's sermon, I want to show you three things that as Christians we can't afford to do. So while we read this ancient book about people that that we might not have a lot in common with, I want you to take home these applications and let them kind of serve your soul today. Number one, we cannot be content to be the only one saved. I want to show you today that there should be um, a lack of contentment in your heart at the number of Christians in your community. Um, You ought to have a burning desire to see more people be saved rather than just ourselves. Number two, we cannot fight for our own salvation. I want us to rest today in the hope of the gospel and the the finished work of the cross, that Jesus accomplished everything for us in our salvation. There's no more work for us to do in regard to salvation. And then number three, we cannot return to fear after feasting. God's given us a great victory, and we ought to live in that. So let's jump into number one. We can't be content to be the only ones saved. Um, the villain's dead in this story, but Esther is not going to stop. The, the story doesn't end here. Esther is not satisfied um, with where she is. And again, God's sovereignty is going to be on full display as everything plays out. God, make no mistake, God will win this battle. Amen? It's the same that we see throughout all of life. God is always victorious. Uh, my boys, my two youngest boys were watching Tom and Jerry yesterday. Um, great classic a cartoon, and they asked me if I'd watch Tom and Jerry with them. And anytime somebody wants to watch classic cartoons, I'm not going to turn that down. So I'm like, heck yeah, we're going to sit down and we're going to watch Tom and Jerry. And I hear Tava and Judah begin to argue over who's going to win in the cartoon Tom and Jerry. Now, if you know anything about Tom and Jerry, Tom's a cat, Jerry's a mouse, and Jerry always wins. The mouse is always victorious. Tom always loses. And, um, and we finish one episode, and of course, Tom makes a fool of himself and gets injured, and Jerry wins. And then, uh, well, uh, let's, let's look at the next episode, and Jerry wins again. And my son Judah was betting on Tom, the poor guy. He was betting on Tom to win. And so he kept saying, well, let's, let's see if he wins this time. Let's see if he wins this time. And Netflix was like, are you still watching? And we kept watching and watching, and Jerry just kept winning. And it's like all he does is win. And, and he began to realize that's kind of the bit of the show. That's kind of how it works, right? That Tom always makes a fool of himself. And if we're not careful, sometimes in our lives, it'll feel like God's losing. Like, you remember that, that picture I showed you one time of Jesus and Satan arm wrestling and Satan looks way more muscular and strong? I think sometimes when we look in our lives, it, it can kind of even feel like Satan is winning, like that he's got the upper hand. And you look at the mess that that our country's in and the mess that your family might be in and the circumstances of your life. It's easy to look around and maybe feel like God's kind of lost control of the whole thing. But let me assure you today, he has not lost control of your circumstances and your life. He will, he will win. Make no mistake. Jesus is victorious and thereby we also are victorious. Even if it feels like you're getting the snot beat out of you right now, you serve a king who is victorious. And that's good news. You're on the winning side. And in God's providential, sovereign plan, now in the biggest empire in the world, in Persia, in the story of Esther, two of the three most powerful people in the empire are Jewish people. You see, the king had promised up to half of the kingdom to Esther. And now that Mordecai is brought into the conversation and honored, and now that Haman is dead, and all of his household, which means all his servants, all of his wealth, all of his power and authority were given to um, Esther and Mordecai, Um, This may have been a very real reality. Uh, They may have had nearly up to half of the influence and power and wealth in the empire. And the king's signet ring is important here. It's now on Mordecai's finger. 
And the title of our series is The Unseen King, the story of the unseen king. And over and over, week after week, we want to reiterate that King Ahasuerus is a major player in this book, but there is an unseen king, and we know his name is Jesus. He's the sovereign Lord. He's controlling the circumstances of the book of Esther. And the unseen king, Jesus, he's the real Lord of the Rings. I've never seen that movie. You Dungeons and Dragons nerds, you know what you know, Lord of the Rings is. You all watch that stuff too. But, but Jesus makes sure that the signet ring is on the right finger. He takes it away from the wicked Haman and puts it on the honorable Mordecai. And, and if, if God is in control of a signet ring thousands of years ago, he's also in control of who has the nuclear codes today and who has the keys to the Oval Office today. And he's in control of things that are far outside your control. And we can rest and be assured of that good, good truth. And so from a kind of a secular standpoint, you could look at this and say, wait, Esther and Mordecai, they've kind of arrived. They've hit the jackpot. They've won the lottery, so to speak. They have everything they could have ever dreamed of, all the wealth, all the power. But Esther, in a righteous way, is not content with that. She's not content to let innocent people perish while she is wealthy. And so in verse 3 it says, Esther spoke again to the king, and she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. What I love about Esther here, she's overcome with emotion, and we see her, this kind of visible uh, description of her weeping at the king's feet. And, and what, what angers me about the passage is that she, as she uh, is overcome with emotion and she weeps at the king's feet, she's met with exasperation from the king, almost annoyance from the king. It, it, it reminds me of when we, we take our children um, out for the day, and we take them fishing, and we take them swimming, and we take them to the pottery place, and we do all these fun things, and then uh, mom and dad are exhausted, and we come back home, we kind of plop down on the couch, and then one of the kids will come over and say they're bored, and they'll say, what are we going to do today? And we're like, excuse me? Like, we have provided you with all this stuff, and that kind of dad attitude that I get um, is the attitude that Ahasuerus has with Esther. He says, look at all that I've done for you. Look at everything I've given you. But what he ignores is the righteous request that Esther is asking. And so his attitude is not righteous, but in God's, again, providence, he's going to give way to the Lord's plan. And so essentially, Ahasuerus says, what more do you want? Verse 7, we see him say to Queen Esther, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman. They've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to uh, lay hands on the Jews. And then verse 8 kind of reveals his heart. He's saying, um, I've get, I, what more do you want from me? I've given you everything. But you know what? I'm going to let you uh, correct what you see as something wrong, but I'm not putting any more work into this. He tells them they have to write the edict. He tells them they have to seal it with the, with the signet ring, all those things. Verse 8 says, write as you please with regard to the Jews. In the name of the king, seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So Xerxes is basically saying, I've done enough, but I guess you can do as you wish. I'm not putting any more work into this. But the unseen king in this book is altogether different than Xerxes. He is compassionate where Xerxes is harsh. He is um, loving and caring where Xerxes is annoyed and exasperated. Um, think, think of this. When you come to your king with requests, does he say, really? After all I've given you, you want to ask for something else? When you go to God in prayer, when you ask something from your king Jesus that, that is very important to you in your life, and maybe you're weeping and crying out, does Jesus look down on you and say, you have the nerve to ask something else from me? 
But rather, he describes God giving us things like a parent who lovingly blesses their children over and over and over again, even though they may not deserve it. You see, God delights in your neediness. You need stuff, that's exactly where Jesus wants you, needy before him. You see, Christians should remain spiritually needy because our God is eternally sufficient, and it is his joy to provide for you, son or daughter of God. It is his joy to pour into your soul the needs that you cry to him. You see, the gospel message is something that we need continually, over and over. There's never a moment in my life when the gospel isn't something that I need. That every day I need the good message that I am jacked up and messed up and Jesus died in my place and gave me righteousness I could have never had on my own. And Esther weeping before an annoyed king made me think in contrast to another story of another woman weeping before another king. We see it in Luke chapter 7. It says, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. You see, as the king Jesus dined with Pharisees, this weeping woman was the sole person in that home to receive grace. This woman realized something important, that she was unable to save herself. And she comes weeping before the king. And the Pharisees thought they were good enough to earn heaven, just like Haman thought he was powerful enough and influential enough to have everything he needed in the kingdom But yet Esther and this woman with the alabaster flask are the ones who understand that they have to fall broken before a perfect king to receive mercy and grace. And I love that Esther is not content to be the only one saved. And I pray that the same is true of you, church. If you have a relationship with Jesus, praise God for that. Walk in that. Be sanctified in that. Grow closer to him every day. But never be content with the amount of people who have come to know Jesus. You have people in your life who are far from Christ, and you are still here because there are still people to reach with that good news. And the message that you take to them is what I want to show you next. Number two is that we cannot fight for our own salvation. We're not selling some product that people have to work for. We're not, we're not giving someone a leg up into ultimately lifting themselves up into heaven by their own bootstraps, but rather we are presenting a case of grace. We're presenting a message of hope that there is nothing you can do to save yourself, and the message of Christianity is that everything has been done for you. You see, we do works of righteousness because we're saved, not as a way of saving ourselves. Now remember, these Jews are disobedient. Um, if you remember back to the very beginning of the book when we started, they were supposed to go back to Israel. God had commanded them. At a certain time, they were going to be given permission. He prophesied it. It came true. And they were supposed to return to Israel. These Jews that remained in the Persian Empire were not supposed to be remaining there. Remaining there had put them in imminent danger. It's the same with our sin and depravity. We remain in places that we don't belong because we are sinners. But God in his grace and mercy finds us in a place where we don't belong and he extends salvation to us. Now look at what happens with these Jews in Persia. Verse 9, we'll pick up. It says, The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written, according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. 
127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then he sent it, uh, he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives. And here is quoted from the original edict to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, publicly uh, displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Now, this is... A little bit of a lengthy description, but it's important for us to see the action that's taken place. Number one, the message was delivered swiftly. Uh, they were taken on these horses that I think it's verse 11 describes as um, they were bred from the king's royal stud. Verse 10 uh, tells us that they were bred from the royal stud. What that means is they were kind of the equivalent of like a modern racehorse. Like Seabiscuit, isn't that a racehorse? I'm not a big racehorse expert, um, but nevertheless, this is like the UPS next day air of Persia. They're making sure this thing goes out, that it gets delivered properly, that everybody knows these horses are swift and strong, and, and they are going out to deliver this edict that, that is not completely undoing the first edict. The first edict had called for the annihilation of the Jews, but the governmental genocide was canceled. But there were a lot of nations that had been kind of um, swallowed up into the Persian Empire. And many of these nations were enemies of the Jews. And this edict that was still in law gave them a legal right to annihilate the Jews. And so what the second edict did was it gave the Jews the legal right to defend themselves. And that they would not be any longer held legally liable for, um, for taking out their enemies. And so essentially this made their salvation legal and possible. And, and what I want to show you is that is the antithesis of your salvation. You, you have a salvation that is, is not just made possible by the cross. You have a salvation that is secured by the cross. That, that, that the King Jesus issues a decree that is much stronger than what Ahasuerus or Mordecai could have ever issued. That his declaration on the cross when he cries, it is finished, is an edict that is, is in totality done. It's paid for. There's nothing left to do. Here, Mordecai is doing all he can by saying, you can defend yourselves, you can save yourselves, but that's not the message of Christianity. Listen, you will fight for many things in your life. You'll fight for your marriage to work. You'll fight to raise your kids in the right way, and they'll rebel against you. You'll fight to make sure they uphold the right things. For your own sanctification, you will fight to, to look more and more like Jesus. But make no mistake, you will not fight for your entrance into heaven. There's nothing that you will ever do to make yourself worthy to gain heaven. Instead, you have a king who fought for you. And he fought in a way no one would have ever thought. He laid his life down and allowed himself to be killed on a cross, drinking in the wrath of the Father and raising from the dead to secure your eternal life. You have an advocate. I'm fighting with the IRS right now. Can I get a witness? Anybody else? <laughs> now, don't get worried. I'm not like in trouble or nothing, but there's just some stuff that, um, that just made me thankful that I paid for this like audit protection. 
And what's beautiful about this is I had to send in like a 70-page appeal that, that this advocate filled out for me. They, just, they called me, they asked me a few questions, and then my advocate with this uh, insurance company and with lawyers, they, uh, they appeal to the IRS for me so I don't have to deal with the wrath of that terrible entity. Right? Sorry, is my Ron Swanson coming through a little bit? Sorry about that. <laughs> the Bible describes Jesus as our advocate. An advocate is someone who speaks for someone who can't speak for themselves or can't defend themselves. And this is exactly what the Jews needed but didn't have. They were going to have to take up swords and fight for themselves in Persia, but we have a king who does us even better than that. 1 John 2, 1 describes him like this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that if you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I filled out an application this week. Um, to be a CASA, a court-appointed special advocate. My wife works for them. And I was reading some of the paperwork about that, and I still have to interview, so y'all pray that goes well. There's probably a background check or a drug screening, so you know, pray that that goes all right. Um, I'm joking, y'all. Nobody laughed at that. I'm joking. Um, but in, in that, um, you speak up for children who are in the foster care system, and you advocate, you speak on behalf of those who can't speak up for themselves. That's, that's what you do. I think the best example of an advocate other than Jesus himself is a guy named the Lorax. Y'all know who this is? Orange guy, big mustache. Um, and you remember his life's calling, what he describes himself as? He says, I'm the Lorax. I speak for the trees. Um, he speaks for the trees who can't speak for themselves. And Jesus speaks for us when we have nothing we can say. When we stand on our final day, on our final judgment before a holy God and looks at our righteousness and all the best things you've ever done just look like a filthy rag in his sight, what can you say for yourself? There's nothing you can do. There's no defense you can give for your unholiness and sinfulness. Here in a moment, we'll sing a song that our final plea before him will just be Jesus. Look to Jesus. Jesus' perfection is all we need. Hebrews 7.25 describes Jesus this way. It says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is describing Jesus praying to the Father for you constantly. Think of all the times you neglect prayer. I'm so bad at this. The times that I just don't speak to the one who created me. But the Bible describes Jesus in his perfection as always making intercession for us. Isn't that gorgeous? That Jesus is speaking up for you in heaven right now, that every time you saved, he is reminding the father, I died for him. I saved her. It's taken care of. It was finished at the cross. That's good news for us. The Jews in Susa didn't have that kind of hope. They had some confidence, but not the kind of confidence we have. So ever more bravery should be in us than was in Esther. Instead, they made ready for war. And the fear that gripped soldiers gripped them. They had to beat their plowshares into swords and ready themselves for battle. Now, as Christians, we're not awaiting a battle for our souls. Rather, we're awaiting a claiming of what's already been won by Christ. Isn't that good news? So we don't live in fear. We live in thankfulness. And so this brings us to application three is we cannot return to fear after feasting. What I love about the end of chapter eight is it shows the Jews having not quite as great of a hope as we have, still having a great confidence 
They feast at the end of chapter 8. They celebrate at the end of chapter 8, knowing they still got to pick up swords, knowing there's still a very difficult battle ahead of them, but they're trusting in God and they're trusting in the turn of events that we see unfolding in providence. And so we cannot return to that fear because we have an even greater hope. Let's look at verse 15. It says, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white. Y'all remember when Ric Flair used to walk out at the WWF? Woo! Y'all need to let one of those ring in praise every now and then at church. Just a Ric Flair. Woo! So here's, here comes Mordecai looking like Ric Flair just in all of his glory. He comes out in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And look what happens in the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. What a turnaround story, right? Only God can write this kind of story. If there's ever doubt that that God is orchestrating all the events of Esther, here at the end of chapter eight, you see it most clearly, I think, because what you see is a man who was quite literally on death row, now wearing the king's signet ring, looking like Ric Flair, walking out going, woo! Only God can do that. It's a turnaround. And the entire city begins to celebrate this turnaround. And verse 16 might be one of my favorite in the book. It says, it describes the Jews like this, that the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Son, if you go back, I want you to leave verse 16 up on the screen just so people can see it. Uh, it, I love the description. They had light and gladness and joy and honor. Look at those four words. And I was studying this this week in the office. I was trying to figure out what they meant. And like, I know gladness and joy and honor. I understood those things, but I'm looking up the Hebrew word for light and it's aura, but you got to spit a little bit when you say it. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out what it means. And I'm, I'm talking to Baker and Leslie in the office this week about it. And I'm like, what do you think it means that the Jews had light? What does that mean? And the, and the best thing I could think of is in English, we, we will say, when you look at a pregnant lady, you know how you describe a, a woman who's pregnant? She's, she's glowing, right? And so I was asking Baker, I don't know why, but I, was, I just thought I'd ask Baker. Let's ask Baker, what's it mean? Why do we say a woman who's pregnant is glowing? And he's, you know, inadequately trying his best to describe what that means. And it's creation of life and Lion King stuff and all this beautiful things. And so I asked Leslie, you know, she's more qualified to answer. Why do we say women are glowing? And Leslie says, because they're sweaty. <laughs> that's, that's what's happening. They're just sweaty. They're pregnant. And I'm like, oh, okay. So maybe with the Jews, it was a little bit of both. I don't know. But, but what the word means is it means, uh, its, it's most literal uh, definition is radiance. And, and what I love about the way that the author describes the Jewish people here is that he describes it in gladness and joy and honor, but those qualities are radiant. In the same way that a light switch, when turned on, the light permeates and fills that room immediately. The indication is that in this empire, the joy and the honor and the gladness of the Jews was permeating every nook and cranny of the empire. They were glowing. They were radiant. That, that God's favor on them was evident. And old New Heights Church, if you could get this, please, that, that our prayer, look at me, that our prayer for ourselves would be that we would be light that we would so permeate the places that we live, the places that we work, the places that we go, that we would so permeate that, that people who long to hide in darkness 
can't escape the light of the gospel. That, that we're, we're like borderline annoying to these communities that we live in. There's New Heights people are everywhere. They're always wearing those mountain shirts, and I see the stickers on the cars. We're getting some more of them, by the way. And I just, they're just everywhere. My prayer is that we would have the same favor of God on our lives so that we would be light. That a city that's set on a hill will not be hidden. And then it leads to verse 17. That that light and that gladness and that joy and that honor leads us to verse 17, which has some wonderful truth in it. It tells us in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reach, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. But that's not the best part. The best part, it tells us this. Many from the people, the peoples of the country, declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, the Bible calls us to fear, calls us to fear the Lord and be reverent before him. And it's the same word that's described here, that they, they had a reverence. And so um, most of us, before we kind of wise up and finally understand that God has been gracious to us, have to kind of hit rock bottom, don't we? We kind of have to find a place where we find ourselves on the losing team. And I think that's what happened to a lot of the Persians at this time. And this fear led them to reevaluate the place where they stood and maybe realize for the first time, I'm on the losing side of God Almighty. And it says that they declared themselves Jews. Now, I, I don't have the power, I don't think, to just be like, I declare myself French, IRS. I don't have to pay your taxes anymore. I'm a Frenchman now. Um, there's probably some class I got to take to do that. Um, I don't know how all that works. But you may wonder, how could they just declare themselves Jews? Well, the Old Testament law actually uh, welcomed anyone and invited all into this. Um, one excerpt from the Old Testament law shows us this clearly in Exodus chapter 12. It says, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Now, circumcision in the Old, Test uh, Old Testament is, is equated to baptism in the New Testament. And so, um, in, in so saying that it is an outward expression of an inward covenant. And here, what you see in God's providential Old Testament law is that God was always calling and welcoming every nation to himself. Most of the Jews actually miss this, but in God's uh, order and his creation, he's always calling all nations to himself. And he's saying, come to me, and anyone who wants to can be adopted into this family. Anybody can get in on this. We in the new covenant, even as Gentile descent, and if you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, we are called the true Israel of God, meaning that we're adopted into this family. And I want you to notice what I read to you in the law. It says that the outsider was treated as family once converted. It describes him as saying this, he shall be as a native of the land. No distinction. It's just like he was born here. Uh, my, my family and I, we fostered children and adopted three kids. And one of my favorite things that I learned in that process is the only thing in American law that can change the past is adoption. No other legal act can change what happened in the past, like back to the future type stuff, time traveling, except adoption. Adoption is the only legal action that changes the past. And this is the same way with proselytes of Israel. He says he becomes a native of the land. It's just like he was born here. There's no partiality. We don't treat him different. They become one of us. And this is the invitation. What a beautiful picture of the gospel, right? 
That as, as they celebrate in Persia, in a pagan nation with a pagan king, they have a feast called Purim that they still celebrate to this day. And anybody could come to the feast and say, hey, I'm a Jew now. Shalom. Let's be brothers. Anybody could get in on that. And Jews to this day continue to celebrate the Feast of Purim. It's Hebrew for lots, descri- describing the lots that were cast to choose the day that this annihilation was supposed to take place, but in God's providence, it did not take place. It celebrates a salvation. Now, if you want to celebrate the Feast of Purim, let me know. I'll come over. But we don't celebrate that feast typically. You can. But the reason we don't celebrate these Old Testament feasts is because we celebrate a better one. The reason we celebrate uh, or we don't celebrate what happened in Esther in a feast or in a holiday is because ultimately it's fulfilled in Jesus in a greater way. As Christians, we celebrate something greater than Esther. We celebrate the unseen king of Esther's story who gave us a meal to trump all other meals. It's greater than Purim. It's greater than the American Thanksgiving meal. I know that's hard to beat. It's greater than Qdoba. We call it communion. We call it the Lord's table. We call it the Lord's supper. And our king, Jesus, doesn't just give us this annually, doesn't just give us this one day a year, doesn't just give us a holiday on our calendar, but rather he invites us to his table over and over and over and over again. And that table is a symbol of our adoption, a table that we had no right to sit at, a table that we were not born into, but a table that he has fought, bled, died, and risen to make sure that we could be at. It's the table of communion. That's why we celebrate it often here at New Heights Church, and we want to invite you to this table. If you're not a member of our church, you don't need to feel stressed out or weird about this. We just ask that you be a believer. If you're a believer in Christ and you've been obedient to him, then we welcome you to this table as part of the universal church, the body of Christ. If you're not a believer, I would encourage you to spend this time just kind of introspectively thinking about your life, maybe repenting for the first time and asking Jesus to forgive you, maybe saying for the first time, I want to be adopted into this family. Listen, anybody can get in on this. But you do business with the Lord right now and let the Holy Spirit work on your hearts. We confess together, and so I'm going to ask you to read this confession with me, and after that, just enter into a time of prayer. And then after that, you will be served communion um, if you want to go to one of the four corners of the room to receive what represents Jesus' body in bread and what represents his blood in juice. And just as his flesh was soaked in his blood on the cross, you'll dip that bread in the juice, soaking it to remind you of the price that was paid for you to be at this wonderful King's table. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.